Great to see you. Glad you're enjoying each other's company. Now sit down. <clears throat> so Chuck left me with 1 Samuel 15. Usually I get nervous about what he leaves me with, but this is a good chapter. I'm thinking the old guy might be softening up in his old age. Because he gave me a good chapter. We're in 1 Samuel uh, chapter 15. Take a look. Give you a chance to get there. Lots of stuff in this good chapter. Happy uh, Thanksgiving in case I forget to tell you. Have a wonderful, wonderful week and celebration. Much to be thankful for, as Mary so well said. Look what it says. Samuel said to Saul, Saul first king of Israel. The Lord sent me to anoint you as king over his people, over Israel. Now, therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. Do you know if everyone in position of authority did that, we'd be in good shape? See, government is God's idea. The family is, the church is, and the third institution God created is government, God's idea. He he didn't create bad and corrupt government. He created the agency of government for the benefit of the citizenry. So would that every king, premier, prime minister, and person in authority simply follow these little words here, listen to the words of the Lord. Something happens when you get into a position of authority, as has been said. It seems that power corrupts, and people in positions of governmental authority in particular seem to lose uh, sight of the fact that they are under authority. That was the case with Saul. That's the case in our day, almost on every front. And here are the words of the Lord. Samuel specifically uh, declares to Saul. Thus says the Lord of hosts, verse 2, I'll punish Amalek. Amalek and the Amalekites are descendants of Esau. Esau was Jacob's brother. And so it says here, I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel and how he set himself against him on the way while he was coming up from Egypt. Israel's in bondage for 400 plus years. She cries out to God and by his grace, he sets her free. She's on her way uh, to the place of promise, the land of Canaan, a land we know now as Israel today. Along the way, she's assaulted by the Amalekites. And God now says it's time to pay up. And so the words of God from Samuel the prophet to Saul the king have to do with Amalek. Amalek's strategy was pretty grotesque. It's recorded in Deuteronomy 25. Remember what Amalek did along the way when you came out of Egypt, how he met you along the way, and he attacked. Here's the strategy. He attacked among you all the stragglers at your rear when you were faint and weary. All those who fell behind during the wilderness wanderings were prey to the Amalekites. It's a terrible, terrible thing to do. It's evil. Because those who fell behind would be women, children, elderly people. Amalek struck at them. It was an evil approach. And so God is uh, essentially saying, now it's time to pay up. So verse 3, go and strike Amalek, utterly destroy all he has. Don't spare him. Put to death man and woman, child and infant, ox, sheep, camel, and donkey. Verse 3 is clear, but also troubling. Does it trouble you? If so, how? Why? Children. God is God of love, right? 
We think of them that way. This calls for the uh, slaying of the entirety of the Amalekites, including women, children, infants. I don't think God needs our defense. Uh, He's God. We submit to him. We don't have to defend him. However, from a human point of view, can anyone justify verse 3? Any thoughts? Yes, Rex. Rex said in a very good way what I'll paraphrase. Children are going to be exposed to the bad influence and thinking of their parents, and at some point those children will live consistently with these unacceptable thought patterns of their parents and act out against Israel just as their parents did. Something like that is what Rex said. Yes. Go ahead, Mike. So that's Mike essentially saying this is the only language these people understand. They're so bad that they have to be wiped out, and this kind of thing is what they understood. Now, understand, Mike's Italian and part of the mafia. (laughs) Take this into account. Yes, ma'am. Did you hear what this lady said? Yeah, well, you shouldn't because women shouldn't speak in church. Okay, look at it, look at it. It's the third hour. You get a little dizzy. So um, it's a brilliant thought. Now, listen, you may not buy this. What happens to babies when they die? They go to heaven, say you. Now, do you say that because you're a good and caring person or you have some good basis for it? They've not reached an age of accountability. Well, wait a second. Aren't children conceived in sin? Doesn't sin keep you out of heaven? Hang on just a second. Sin doesn't keep you out of heaven? Sin, sin keeps you out of heaven? Babies are conceived in sin. You forget about choice. I'm choosing to demand that you answer my question. If sin keeps you out of heaven and babies are conceived in sin, how do you know babies go to heaven? What do you think, Daniel? Good. We do. Sin doesn't keep you out of heaven. Rejection of the Savior from sin keeps you out of heaven. Let me ask you a question. If you're a Christian, are you going to heaven? When did you stop sinning? Maybe tomorrow. Sin is not a problem because God has a solution for it. It's called the sacrifice of his son, sinless son, Jesus, on the cross. No child has rejected the Lord Jesus. Therefore, a baby aborted, slain, or who dies in infancy goes to heaven. In fact, I think in Revelation when it talks about the myriad upon myriads around the throne who are praising him, I think it's some of these kids. 
So our sister brings up a very interesting thing. Uh, she is saying God actually is ensuring the uh, entrance to heaven to these kids who would otherwise have no chance at the hands of their, as Mike alluded to, very evil parents. The Amalekites were not just bad people. They had stooped to levels of moral depravity, the likes of which would have so defiled the line of Messiah, the Israelites, that your salvation and mine might have been jeopardized. Bear? I think it's interesting. I think about Haman and Asher. Oh, yeah. Agag. Agag. Yeah. And, and it says that, which means that there were more than one that, of course, some of them might have disappeared and scattered and hid and that kind of thing. But, you know, when they came into the, you know, God ordered them when they came in across the Jordan to wipe out these people. There are certain ones they didn't do. And we might not even have the book of Esther if they would have been Barry, for a Gentile guy. He's right on target. Listen, you wouldn't have the whole book of it. The number one protagonist, the bad guy in Esther, uh, who Barry identified correctly for us, is Haman. He's a descendant of Agag and the Amalekites. Listen to me. I don't understand all of God's ways, but folks, Father knows best. Nobody's more compassionate than he is. I don't have to defend his compassion. He's up to something. You know what else? Even short before Esther, 1 Samuel 31, we're reading about David. We'll get there eventually. He is Saul's successor. And you read about the Amalekites causing trouble again. God knows what he's doing. He knows they wouldn't be repentant no matter how much time you give them. And they're going to continue to be your perennial foes. Therefore, do what I say and deal with it. Now, people will say, you know, you Christians, you criticize Islam as being violent, but apparently your Christianity is as violent. That's not true. It's not nearly. First of all, this is taking place at a particular time with reference to a particular people group in a particular situation. Does this strategy continue on into the New Testament? Tell me. Secondly, in Islam, violence is an evangelistic methodology. We don't advance the gospel uh, at gunpoint or at the edge of a sword. You see what I mean? That's what Islam... Islam says, confess Allah and the bow before... Submit to Allah. That's what Islam means, yield or submit. Submit to Allah and Muhammad as his chief prophet or as an infidel, the only other option is for you to die. We don't do this as Christians. We don't say, here is the Lord Jesus Christ. We would like for you to accept him and be assured of eternity in heaven. And if you don't, I'll blow your brains out. We do not do this kind of thing. We grieve over that person and we hang in there with them. So you can't compare the violence in the Quran to the violence in the Bible. And let me bring up something else. Genesis chapter 12. God brings this character Avram, Abram, from a far place into a place of promise. And God enters into a, 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 an agreement, a, a, a covenant with him. And it, it, because it's a covenant with Abram, it's called the Abrahamic Covenant. You heard about this? Abrahamic Covenant. It's in Genesis chapter 12. I share with you one passage. Genesis 12, verse 3. I will bless those who bless you. I'll curse those who curse you. All we're seeing here in 1 Samuel 15 is that God's keeping his word. The Amalekites along the way cursed Israel. God says, I'll deal with you. Now listen, 
you may say, what's up with God? Why does he have this thing with the Jews? Uh, That's a good question. I think for two reasons. In God's covenant with the Jews, he reveals to humankind two things, human nature and divine nature. What do I mean human nature? The Jews are the most, my people, the most privileged, spiritually privileged people group on earth. You can't deny it. We have prophets, apostles, feasts of Israel. We have a Jewish Messiah. We are the most privileged spiritual people on earth, yet we have squandered our spiritual privilege. In fact, in this very book, we see my people look God in the eye, figuratively speaking, and say, thank you for offering to be our king, but no thank you. We prefer a king like all the other nations. And they got Saul. Can you imagine that? The most spiritually privileged people group on earth. God didn't choose the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites. He chose the Israelites. Why? Not because any good thing in them. He chose them out of his sovereignty. Ask him. I don't have any idea why. What did they do in response? Reject him in place of a king like Saul. Don't you think God would be justified in giving him a boot in behind or even worse, separating himself? No. God's transaction with Israel reveals human nature. Folks, under the best of circumstances, you and I sin. Good night, our forebears did it in, a, in paradise. In the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve, who lacked nothing, had one commandment to obey. Lay off the fruit. Boom. And they mess things up for you and I to this very day. Best of circumstances. Three basketball players, UCLA, privileged kids, wonderful kids, are on a trip in China. They do the shoplifting thing. Thank God they're back home safe. I'm glad. I listened to the press conference where they read their prepared statements. All three articulate guys. They have a future. It's, it's going to be fine. It's going to work out. I know we all want the best for these kids. They're just kids. You say to yourself, good night. They're on scholarship. They're in a great university. They're going to they're gonna beat anyone they play in China. <laughs> you know, they got everything going for them. What's the deal? They said they made a mistake. Now, here's the part I can't respect. They didn't make a mistake. Here's a mistake. You're riding down the road, and you make a right turn when you should have made a left turn. That's called a mistake. There's no moral uh, overlay to that. You should have turned right, you turned left. There's no moral ramifications. It's a cognitive thing. You made a mistake. You know what I mean? You didn't listen to your GPS lady telling you what to do. (laughs) They didn't make a mistake. They took what they took because they sinned, and they sinned because they're sinners. And in so doing, they are me. They're me. Not only can I do what they did, I have done what they did. You know, when I was a kid, my my boys and I went downtown in our little town. There was a, what they call, Ben Franklin 5 and 10. They have those anymore? They had a rack of paperback books. I wasn't even reading. I told my friends, hey, I'm taking it. You what? Why are you taking it? I just want to. I picked up the entire rack. I just walked right out the store like this. I'm not kidding you. I carried it like half a block away and just, I, I, I discarded. I don't want it. Why did I do this? Because I'm a sinner. I did it because it made no sense whatsoever. I don't want it. I don't need it. I'm not going to read this stupid stuff. I didn't give it to anybody. Why did I do it? Why did these guys do it? Because they're sinners. They're no different than me. It's a sin nature. And in case you doubt it, look at the Jews. 
they reveal human nature. The Jews are a mirror. That's why God keeps us alive. Look at me and see you. Even under the best of circumstances, your inherent nature is to sin against Almighty God. Don't believe it? The Jews did, and they had everything going for them. So that's one reason God has a covenant relationship with the Jews. Uh, through it, human nature is revealed. But second, divine nature is revealed. I just showed you this terrible picture about my people. How, how does God respond? Graciously. A pardon. Forgiveness is offered. Perpetuation of the relationship. How do I know this? Get all the way to Romans 11, and it says all Israel will be saved. Forget Romans 11. Go to Revelation. You have 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of Israel, a total of 144,000 converted Jewish, believing, fanatical, passionate Apostle Pauls running around, sharing the gospel with everything that moves and dying for it. How do I know they're Jews? Because it says 12,000 from each of the tribes. They're not Jehovah's Witnesses. You don't buy that, do you? 12,000 from, listen, I don't, you ask me, Stuart, what tribe are you from? I don't know this. But apparently God keeps the records. Because in Revelation, it'll say 12,000 from Asher, 12,000 from Gad, 12,000 from Zebulun. You know what I'm talking about? So, folks, here's the deal. In the face of Jewish sin, you get the grace of a Jewish Savior. Is that, that about the Jews? No. It's a message to the world. You have sinned. Jesus will save you. How do I know that? Look at Could you please explain to me why Jews exist today? It's only the grace. Listen to me. One of the most advanced civilizations on earth at the time was Nazi Germany, the Third Reich. That movement was not a a bunch of, uh, you know, country bumpkins. I mean, the intelligentsia of the society was behind it. And they had the military-industrial complex in Germany, unbelievably advanced society. In fact, they came up with great ways to eradicate a whole people group. They called it the final solution to get rid of the Jews. Why waste bullets on those Jews? We can gas them. We'll just tell them it's time for a shower. That's what they did. You take a whole bunch of Jews into this thing. Well, where's the water? Oh, it's gas. They all die. It was brilliant. They killed six million of us. Isn't that amazing? I'll tell you what's more amazing. Six million of us survived. Tell me how. I'll tell you what's more amazing. There are about 14 million of us today alive. Please tell me how. You can't talk to a a third Reich, you can talk to modern-day Nazis, but you can't talk to a Third Reich Nazi anymore. You can't talk to a Philistine, a Babylonian, a Syrian. But you can talk to a Jew if you want to. Don't. I'm busy. <laughs> but I'm just trying to say. Now, you can say, well, I know how they did it. The Jews are tough. No, we're not. Look at us. See, the Jews are smart. No, listen, I'm going to tell you something. Be careful about this. No ethnic group has a corner on the market of any particular characteristic. God, in the diversity of humankind, has spread his wealth equally. There are intelligent people in every ethnicity and not-so-intelligent people. By the way, you think all Jews are smart? Let me introduce you to some of my cousins. <laughs> it's just not true. So don't do that racism thing. Be careful. Don't characterize it particularly. It's not the way. The only reason why we're in existence today is the grace of God. And so the existence of Jews reveals, one, human nature, we sin, to divine nature, God of all grace. I have to tell you, that's one of the reasons why God takes such a strong stand against those who seek to exterminate the Jews. So listen, I'm going to make a statement here, a little dogmatic. 
if you come against the Jews, you go against God. I'm not just saying that because I'm a Jew. I'd like you to be nice to me. I'm telling you this. God has a plan. I just revealed a little bit of it through the Jews. You come against the Jews, you interfere with God's plan. You don't want to mess with God. The Amalekites did, hence God's rather severe response. Okay, goes on. So Saul gets the people together, and you see how many there are. Verse 4. And then he comes to the city of Amalek, verse 5. And verse 6, he says to the Kenites, who were they? Uh, a branch of the Midianites. Who are the Midianites? They are the descendants of Moses' father-in-law, Jethro. Kenites. Here's what Saul says to them. Go, depart. Go down from among the Amalekites so that I don't destroy you with them because you showed kindness to all the sons of Israel. You know what that is? Abrahamic covenant, once again. You see the cursings and the blessings. The Amalekites received the cursings because of their response to Israel. The Kenites received the blessing because of their response to Israel. I'll tell you something else that's interesting. Uh, Let me read this to you. It's in Exodus chapter 17, verse 14. God said, write this in a book as a memorial. Recite it to Joshua. I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Exodus was written uh, close to four centuries before 1 Samuel. Four centuries ago, God said what he planned to do. Don't you think he gave the Amalekites enough time to repent? So his response was not that he had a bad day, didn't have a good night's sleep. He's in a bad mood. You know, you got close to 400 years to get it together. They don't. And about the same time ago, (laughs) that's when the uh, Canaanites befriended Israel. So God remembered over close to four centuries, those who beat up on his people and those who befriended them. Now, you may not like the severity of God with reference to the Amalekites, but I bet you you like it when he takes up your cause. Want to hear something good? You like this just like I do. Your father will get revenge against those who have persecuted his kids. It's happening all over the world. You shake your head, you go crazy, you don't know what to do. You don't think our father is aware of this stuff? And he's patient. He's patient. In this case, close to four centuries, he's patient. But mess with God's kids. You. Mess with God's kids. And you arouse the wrath of their father. Their father is a heavenly father who is the creator of the universe. You don't want to mess with him. Now, a lot of people don't like this because they, they want to paint God as a uh, kind of a hippie flower child. Peace and love, peace and love, peace and love. How about holiness? How about he's a consuming fire? How about you do not want to mess with him? How about the wrath of God? If you're a Christian, do you have to worry about it? No. Why? Why not? Because his wrath was fully outpoured on the shoulders of his own son. And then when it was over, his son said, it's finished, it's over, it's paid in full. He canceled the debt. So now God sees us not as adversaries, but as kids. But if you're not one of his kids, you ought to fear the wrath of God. I know we don't preach that a lot. We, we, we like the, a mamby-pamby, you know, the dove-like nature of God. He is that. But folks, you have to hold that intention with the fact that he is uncompromisingly holy. There is 
his judgment and wrath to come. We do have to make do with him. And if you're not right with him, things happen like with the Amalekites. Okay, so here's what happens. So, so the Canaanites get, get a break here. Verse 7, so Saul defeated the Amalekites. And uh, verse 8, he captured Agag, their king, alive, destroyed all the people. Not really all the people, as Barry and I have pointed out. Verse 9, Saul and the people spared Agag and then the best of stuff. They kept the best of the livestock. They got rid of that, which is worthless. Verse 10, the word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I made Saul king. He's turned back from following me. He hasn't carried out my commandments. Samuel was distressed, cried out to the Lord all night. See the word distressed? In Hebrew, it actually means to be hot. He was angry. Samuel was just angry. Saul, here you go again. You have been given great privilege. You've been lifted up to this high position, and look what you're doing. He spends all night to deal with this before confronting Saul the next day. It's a good thing. When someone has bugged you, offended you, it's a kind of good thing to insert a little bit of space before you give them a piece of your mind. So anyway, this is what happens now. The next day, Samuel rose early, verse 12 to meet Saul, and it was told Samuel, saying, Saul came to Carmel, and he set up a monument for himself and then went elsewhere. I've been to Carmel. Some of you have. It's a real place, the Carmel Mountain Range. There, Saul erected a monument for himself, typical uh, of victors in the day. He might have said something like, hear ye, hear ye, everybody who passes by. I saw the great. He did something like this. Wiped out Amalek, you know, and I didn't even sweat or whatever. You know, signed your greatness. So he set up a monument for himself. It's very interesting because earlier on we read in First Samuel that uh, the Philistines were given the Israelites a hard time. And Samuel led them in victory over the Philistines. And we read about it in First Samuel 7, uh, verse 12. Samuel took a stone and set it between Mizpah and Shen and named it Ebenezer. Ebenezer, saying, thus far the Lord has helped us. Both guys whose names start with S set up monuments. Samuel set up a monument to the glory of God. Saul set one up for himself, to his own glory. Hmm. They're different people. So then you get this, uh, verse 13. Samuel came to Saul. Now, we don't have a record of Samuel yet saying anything. Samuel came to Saul. He didn't even say anything. And Saul said to him, blessed are you of the Lord. I have carried out the command of the Lord. That is the voice of a guilty conscience. So my son is here, one of them. And uh, I remember, I don't know if you remember this, but when they were kids, little kids, I came home one night just for kicks. They were watching TV in the living room, three of them. I got three of them. And I said, hey, I know what you did. Ben made me do it. I didn't do it. There's all kinds of confession coming out. The voice of a guilty conscience. You, re- you don't remember this? What, did I make that up? Oh, really? But it makes for a good illustration. <laughs> Look at here. That's essentially what's happening here. Samuel just occupies space and even sitting there. Good to see you, Sam. Oh, by the way, everything God asked me to do, took care of it. That's what he says. But Samuel says, it's a little comic here. What then is this bleating of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen which I hear? 
You see the word bleeding and lowing? You know what those words are in Hebrew? Voice. Here's what Samuel is saying. Saul, I've heard your voice. I don't believe it. But I've heard the voice of animals, which I do believe. You were supposed to wipe out all the animals, but I hear their voices. Your voice means nothing because I hear their voices. So Saul says, they, we don't get a me, we, got a, we don't get an I, we got a they. They brought them from the Amalekites, the people, the people. For the people spared the best of the sheep. They did it. I'm the leader, but, you know, they just did it. But, 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 but Samuel, they did it to sacrifice to the Lord. Who's God? Your God. Interesting. This guy has no relationship. They did it, by the way. To, I didn't do it. They did it. And by the way, they did it to offer sacrifices to the Lord your God. So Samuel says to him, verse 16, wait. Let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. He said, speak. Samuel said, is it not true, though you were little in your own eyes, you were made the head of the tribes of Israel, and the Lord anointed you king over Israel? Isn't it true, Saul? There was a time you and humility even realized your lowness. And look how God elevated you to this lofty position. And verse 18, the Lord sent you on a mission and said, go and utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they're exterminated. Why, why didn't you obey the voice of God? Why would you rush upon the spoil and do what's evil in his sight? And Saul said, I did obey the voice of the Lord. I went, I went on the mission which the Lord sent. I mean, I brought back Agag, the king, and I've utterly destroyed the Amalekite. Well, he's lying. We run into him in 1 Samuel 30. We run into him in Esther. So verse 21, but, but the people took some of the spoiled sheep. It's the people, not me. And the oxen, the choices of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God. And Samuel says something in verse 22 now, very significant. Has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of lambs. Obedience is what God values because obedience means the one obeying values the relationship with the one who we are obeying. Obedience is a relationship term. It has to do with respect and loyalty and yieldedness and submission. That's what God's looking for. He, he, he's not so much interested in our uh, uh, liturgy as much as he is in our listening. So sacrifices, you know, religious behavior. Um, it's not inherently bad, but God is saying a lot of religious, liturgically sound people don't even know me. They don't obey me. I come from a very high liturgical religious background. A synagogue liturgy is flat out beautiful. It's not evil, distasteful. It's beautiful. It's very meaningful. You may come from high liturgy backgrounds like that. There's nothing inherently wrong with the liturgy. But in synagogue, you can look around. Probably nobody knows God personally in there. Nobody knows him, knows his word, is submitting to him. But they are liturgically correct. And here what we're being told is that's not what God's interested in. You can go into certain religious settings, and if you don't uh, comply with the liturgy, 
in an exact way, you're considered to be on the outs with God. You've got to do it a certain way. You do the liturgy, the procedures, the customs. They may not be wrong in and of themselves, but, but getting all that right doesn't impress God. How you wear, what garments you wear, how many times you bow down, how many fastings in, in a day, you know, how much incense you use and all the You can do these things. They're not inherently wrong, but I'm telling you, there's smoke screens and distractions from what, according to verse 22, God values. I want you to listen. I don't really care about your liturgy if you're not listening to me. I want you to pursue me. I want you to obey me. In another place, In the Bible, it says, for I desire loyalty rather than sacrifice and the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. So here you have Saul who said, we're going to make sacrifices to God. You know, we'll do the religious thing. You can't buy God off. You can't appease his holiness except from obeying him. The first act of obedience is to say, oh, God, I accept your sin sacrifice on my behalf, your son, Jesus. I mean, it doesn't matter how religious you are, Islamic, Catholic, Jewish, Lutheran. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how religious. If you've disobeyed God at the first point of uh, the exercise of your will, your liturgy matters nothing to God. Your religion matters not. The first opportunity to obey God is to say, oh, God, I submit to your sin solution. I admit to my sin and that... Your son is the only solution to it. I accept Jesus as my Savior. I obey your terms. And apart from that, God says, I'm not interested in your religiosity and your vestments and your incense and your sacrifices and your fastings and how many times you bow down and how much money you put in an offering plate. I don't care. I desire loyalty rather than sacrifice. I want you to obey me. Saul didn't. And then... Samuel, you think he he didn't say enough. Look at this, verse 23. For rebellion is as the sin of divination or witchcraft. And insubordination is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you've rejected the word of the Lord, he's rejected you from being king. So this thing, rebellion is as the sin of divination or witchcraft. Uh, Samuel is um, equating the two. Why? Uh, rebellion is a denial of God's authority. So too is involvement in the occult. When you involve yourself in the occult, you're seeking other sources of authority. That's why Samuel could say rebellion is as the sin of divination, which leads me to this. You ought to clean out your house of any semblance of anything occultic, Anything, seances, palmistry, even so-called benign reading of your horoscopes. And can I tell you this? Uh, This will get me into trouble as, actually, I've given you a variety of things today (laughs) to go for. And it's because I'm 68 now, and I really don't need a job. (laughs) So you just get bold. Uh, So let me tell you this. You parents and grandparents who are giving the Harry Potter series to your children and grandchildren, let me as lovingly as I can say to you, what is your problem? Now, I know they're literarily uh, creative. The author is a very gifted writer. But you want to expose your kids 
to magical incantations and formula to win victory over others and all the rest. You say, well, my grandchildren has never been a reader, and now they're just gobbling up these books. Can I just say something to you? What is wrong with you? How, how many years do you need to stay in a Bible-teaching church before you get enough discernment to know better than that? What's the doggone problem? Do you know God says run like crazy away from this stuff and you buy the series and give them as Christmas gifts? Because your kids are... i rather have illiterate grandchildren than grandchildren exposed to the occult. What's your problem? I don't get it. You go to movies and watch things on TV that depict witches in a comical fashion. Let me tell you something. God's not laughing. The only one laughing is Satan. You're giving ground to the evil one. Listen to me. This is going to be far out to some of you, but it happened to me. Uh, Parents came to me several years ago. Their little child was disrupted by nightmares regularly. Just wake up screaming. Well, we ruled out as much as we could. And then... uh, through a series of questions came upon, uh, this came out. The little gal had a necklace, and on it was a magical amulet, something like this, that uh, her parents gave her for some birthday gift. I said, just humor me here. Take off the necklace. Get rid of it. Get rid of it. And the kid never had a sleepless night again. Now, I know this is a little sensational and a little dramatic, but doggone it. The same book that told me about the Savior tells me about Satan. You don't think he's, he's alive and well and active? You don't think he uses stuff like that as beachheads, beachheads to infect your, your children, grandchildren? Folks, rebellion is as the sin of divination. It's putting yourself under an authorities other than God's. Folks, I'm telling you, go home, clean out your stuff. You're to go home today and check out. You see anything in there? That shouldn't be in there. Don't give it away to someone. Burn it. Oh, yes, ma'am. I'm sorry. Oh, yeah. Okay, we got to hear this. Hang on just a second. Here's a lady who used to be a Buddhist lady. This is going to be good. I, I was Buddhist before I became a Christian. And Buddhism practiced a lot of the occult that you're talking about. My parents are still Buddhist. They go to a fortune teller, you know, and there's so much darkness behind all of that. My question is, I've dealt with this throughout, you know, even after I became a Christian because I feel like there's demonic forces surrounding, you know, my family still. What do you suggest? Because, you know, I can't just not talk to my parents or... So this is a very good question. First of all, please remember to pray for our sister's parents, would you please? So when you, you should not separate from them out of fear because he who is in you is greater. And because you're possessed by the Holy Spirit now, you don't have to worry by osmosis of contracting evil spirits. As long as you draw a line and make sure you're not participating in any of the practices and habits they are. So... If it came to a point where they said, no, you cannot come to see us unless you too engage in our fortune telling and so on, then you have to say, because I love you, I can't compromise my greater love for God, then you have to separate even from your own parents. But there are things in the house that they're giving me. Yeah, I'm afraid you're going to have to draw the line. Now, look at here, folks. 
I know this is the day of political correctness and we want to be nice and all that other kind of stuff. No, I think God is calling us to be a radically separated people. I'm afraid you're going to have to say to your parents, I love you and your heart's all right. Thank you for giving this to me. However, in the eyes of God, who has rescued me from sin, this is something that's not you, but this is displeasing to him. And so I cannot accept it, but thank you so much. Now, how they respond is their business. This is tough stuff. Yeah, for the dis. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Ah, now this is good. So you expressed yourself; they were hurt, and in a sense, the problem was solved because they stopped bringing that that food. So it sounds like your your parents, uh, thank God, are getting the message. And what you want to make sure what they're getting is not that you're weird or disrespectful, but that you have come to be a devoted follower of the Savior. They, so you want to connect your choices with him. Otherwise, they won't get the benefit of what you're doing. Look, it's a tough stuff. I know this is rough for you, especially if you're, if you're new believers, but Jesus calls us to a greater devotion to him than even to our own parents and family members. Thank you for sharing. And I'm glad that the Lord has rescued you, and we'll pray he does the same with your parents. All right, so look here, verse 24. Saul said to Samuel, I've sinned. I've indeed transgressed the command of the Lord in your words because I feared the people and listened to their voice. Doesn't verse 24 sound like uh, confession, repentance? I mean, I don't think I could have confessed sin any better. It's really good. But as you know, if you've read on, he didn't mean it. So here's the deal, something to learn. When someone has committed a violation or an offense and utter words following it, you could listen respectfully to your words, but if you go on them without any behavior consistent with those words, you're setting yourself up again for another hit. Let me illustrate. A lady came to me years ago, told me her husband is beating her up. <clears throat> So uh, we counseled her to give him a strong message and uh, even to move out. He did. And then he came to her and said, I'm sorry, I won't do it again. She said, okay, come on, back home. She wanted to restore normalcy, as you can understand, the status quo. He beat her again. I and a couple other guys here confronted him and told him we're going to bring your wife to a safe place that you know not of. And we're going to watch you. We're going to hold you accountable. You won't make a move. We'll watch you. He said to me, I'm sorry for all this. How long will this go on? Now, when someone says to you, how long do I have to do the right thing? They're not repentant. So you never answer the question. They want to know the rules of the game so they can play the game. So if you say three weeks, he knows I just got to stop beating my wife for three weeks. Week four, I'll bloody her. I'm telling you, that's how people do it. So instead you say, hey, the answer to that question lies with us. The issue for you is do the right thing. 
Good end to the story. He did. They're back together. Everything's cool. Unusual. It doesn't always work that way. Here's the point. This poor lady feared being left alone more than the beatings. That's why she didn't confront him nor hold him to his words. But the Bible says, bring forth fruit in keeping with your repentance. Words of repentance have to be matched by behaviors. She never required that of him because she feared abandonment more than abuse. It's a poor lady. Don't miss her. I'm not criticizing. I'm just telling you, this is what happened. Folks, we can't do that. Words. I mean, everyone caught in all this sexual stuff going around says, I'm sorry. Except this guy who's running for governorship of Ohio. You read about this guy? He says, man, they're going to find me out. So therefore, I'll get an offense. I'll just confess to having slept with 50 women, one in a hayloft. And he gave this graphic description of his escapades with this woman in a hayloft. He's thinking, this is cool. They can't find out anything about me. He says, after all, I'm just a man. You know, some people will vote for him. I mean, maybe they're saying, yeah, I don't approve of what he did, but at least I finally got an honest politician. (laughs) Kind of crazy stuff. Sort of a crazy day. So words, sorry, folks, they don't mean that much. So if you hear words like from these from Saul, you say, good, that sounds good. That's good, Saul. Now regain trust. Once trust is violated, the one who violated the trust can't put a time time limit on its restoration. It takes time. So, folks, you should listen to words and and encourage the good word. This is good. So I'm so happy to hear this. So really, really well. Okay, good, good. Can we get back to me being your king? No, man. Bring, Bring forth fruit in keeping with repentance, which he never did. So verse 25, now, therefore, please pardon my sin. Return to me that I may worship the Lord. But Samuel said, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and he has rejected you from being king over Israel. And then listen, listen as Samuel turned to go, Saul seized the edge of his robe, and it tore. And Samuel, I guess being able to think pretty quickly on his feet, said to him, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to your neighbor who is better than you. He took this opportunity of his torn garment to sort of make a metaphorical statement in the same fashion God has torn your kingdom. He's going to give it to your neighbor. Who's the neighbor? David. David. So then it says, verse 29, also the glory of Israel. That's the only time you read that phrase or, or, or this description of God here in the Bible. The glory of Israel, or it might say the strength of Israel. By the way, I I know it may seem like I'm harping on this, but I did not write this. I'm just reading it. Look how God identifies himself as the glory of Israel. Don't you see? That's why I say you come against the Jews, you go against God. He didn't say the glory. He says the glory of Israel right there. Now, why? You can ask him some. I don't have any idea. All I know is he has an unusual attachment to Israel. I'm just saying. So if you're into this, you know, those Jews, this, that, and the other thing, let's get rid of the Jews. The church has replaced the Jews, you know, whatever. Apparently not in God's mind. The glory of Israel will not lie or change his mind, for he's not a man that he should change his mind. Then he said, I've sinned, but please honor me now before the elders. He seems to be more concerned about his appearance in the eyes of uh, his constituency than God. 
I've sinned, but please honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel and go back with me that I may worship the Lord your God. So Samuel went back following Saul and Saul worshiped the Lord. And Samuel said, bring me Agag, king of the Amalekites. And Agag came to him cheerfully and said, hey, surely the bitterness of death is past. Let's just forget it. What Samuel said, as your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hewed Agag to pieces before the Lord at Gilgal. Now, we don't do this sort of thing today. It took place at a specific time, place, situation with certain people. And as you Something called progressive revelation. As the Bible unfolds and we get into the New Testament, it's not that God has changed. It's just that the unfolding of God's redemptive plan has changed, and therefore we don't do this thing anymore. But we can still make an application from it. It's this. Get a gag out of your life. It might literally be a relationship that you're not supposed to be in, and you know it. You don't have to kill that person. In fact, you're not permitted to, but you have to get out of that relationship. If you're in a live-in relationship, get out or get married. If you're with a non-believer, get out. That's agag, agag, agag. Now, I know these are very, very difficult things to which I say, what do you think it is to follow God and be holy like he's holy? You think it's a cakewalk? Well, I think it's made out to be that way. Just utter some words and you're suddenly a Christian. It's not just embracing the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. It's embracing your own death, burial, and resurrection to new life. And every maniac in the world today is becoming passionate and outspoken about his or her wrong beliefs. What about us? One thing I admire about Muslim people is you better not offend their God. You better not challenge their attendance in the mosque. And for us coming to church is optional. One thing I admire about devout Muslim people is how separated they are from the rest of us. But we fit in. We watch the same movies. We drink the same whatever. Use the same language. We're called to be holy, separated. Israel was called to be holy. God was eradicating the Amalekites in order to preserve a distinctly holy people. But it's the same with us. Folks, get rid of Agag. It might not be a person. It might be a thing. What is it that you're so attached to? Someone in an earlier class told me they had friends who used to attend here all the time. The guy bought a boat. Now he doesn't come to church on Sunday. You don't have to go to church to be saved. I'm not saying that. But if you're truly saved, you ought to be in church. Why? You say, well, I don't get anything out of it. Well, a lot of times I don't get anything out of it either. It's not why you come to church. You come to church to let the rest of the world know whose side you're on. You get out of bed on Sunday and you get in your stinking car and you come here. 
or another church. Go to church. Let people know whose side. Because God wants a separated people. And the most graphic way to demonstrate to your children, grandchildren, neighbors, and everyone else that you're a devoted follower of the Lord Jesus. They don't know your private prayer life and your Bible study, but they do know you go to church. So if on a given Sunday, well, I don't like the music and the preacher's message was not good and the Jew boy is offending me again, whatever the deal, too bad, man. It has nothing to do with any of that. Get rid of Agag. Certain recreational pursuits, use of leisure time, money, all this kind of, all, all this kind of stuff. God, God wants to, he wants to tell you something. Uh, Saul lost his position of influence. I don't know if he was saved or not. I don't have any idea. But a believer doesn't lose his or her salvation through disobedience. You just lose your sphere of influence. You're shamed and you bring shame on your family. You mar your reputation. You forfeit certain positions. You'll never forfeit the love of God. How do I know that? See, I go back to Israel again. If God has not given up on Israel, he's not going to give up on you. But you do forfeit your sphere of influence for God's glory. So get rid of Agag. Cut him to pieces. Whatever it is, get rid of it. Clean it. What if an angelic auditor showed up at your door <laughs> unannounced, went through your house, your bookshelves, your drawers, your refrigerator? What would he find? Don't worry, it's not going to happen. Something worse is already going on. The God who you know and who loves you sees everything. You want to hear a haunting truth? Psalm 139, where can I go from your presence? Where can I flee from your spirit? If you're on the run from God, that is haunting. But that's the point. Don't be on the run, uh, on the run from Get rid of Agag. You don't have to wait for an, a divine audit of your stuff. Go through it. Let there be nothing that's part of your life that obstructs your free and bold access to the throne of grace. Saul was into excuse-making and uh, shifting the blame and lying and all. Get, get out of that secrecy and deception, all the rest. Cleanse yourself of agag. Get rid of that because you're called to be a separated person unto Christ Jesus. And loyalty to him must take precedent even over parents and everybody, everybody else. You shall be holy. God said to Israel, for I am holy. You shall be holy. God says to the church, for I am holy. He hasn't changed. And those who are privy to his covenant must be holy, just like his ancient people are to, are to be. Bear? I think there's a lot of debate. I read the stories of how much uh, the Lord has obviously been with him, you know, till, up to the point, you know, where uh, he said, I forgive you. And it seems like almost he's clueless as to what's going on. Yes. And, and I think we get like that. Well, he's yeah. like that. And if he's 
you're so right, which is why, you know, we, we want to hold each other to levels of holiness because a little compromise leads to more, leads to more. And then, Barry, as you said, we get callous. We don't, we don't even see it. We don't even recognize it. I had a close friend. I was in mission field in Germany, and he was a welder. And he said, Stuart, I can hold a scalding cup of coffee in my hand and not feel it because of the calluses on my hand. He said, that's what sin is like. So if you know something is between you and God, deal with it right away. Get rid of it. So Paul said to Timothy. Yeah. All right, folks, so we know what we're supposed to do. <laughs> it costs Jesus everything to get us. It costs us to follow him. And it, it costs us our, our... Look, just like the king is under authority, we're under authority too. We're under authority. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for elevating us, as you did salt, to a position of royalty. You call us, well, special people, a royal priesthood and all the rest. And now we just have to live up to it and in a way that's consistent with it. Help us to be salt and light influencers rather than ones influenced by the surrounding culture. Help us in our own minds and the power of your spirit to raise the bar with reference to things we engage in, read, expose ourselves to, drink, smoke, whatever it is. None of these things are designed to win your favor. We have your favor if we have your favored, only begotten, beloved son, Jesus. And now, by way of saying thank you, we just want to be presented before you, oh God, agag free. Help us to be agag free in our lifestyles. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you, folks. Happy Thanksgiving. See you in a couple weeks.